Our scripture reading for this morning is the entire book of Jude. Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life, eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, 
following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed bolsters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, family. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I pray that as you come out of the week that you just walk through, that your time here this morning will be a time of rest and refreshment for you. Family, you know you don't have to prove anything to anyone in this room. You also don't have to prove anything to God the Father. Jesus has already proved uh, everything that you need proven on your behalf. So you're not here to earn favor. You're not here to prove or keep anything. Uh, the Father is, is keeping you in Christ. And if you're visiting with, with us this morning, please know you can rest here. You, you don't need to put on a church mask or act a certain way. We want you to be yourself, and ultimately, we want you to find your rest in Jesus. That's our, our hope for you. So let's pray, and then we'll get right down to work this morning. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. I pray that you would remind us that we are your kids, and Jesus, just as you taught us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that you would give us today the daily bread that our souls need to be nourished, that you would remind us how much you have forgiven us so that you would incline our hearts to forgive those who have sinned against us this week. Father, I pray that you would lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. You know how quickly our minds and our feet are to run away from you, and so we pray that you would deliver us. Father, I pray that you would remind us this morning, it's your kingdom, your power, and your glory. You carry all that weight, so we don't have to. So Father, forgive us for kind of the religious tendency to uh, live for our own glory or our own kingdoms, or to live like we, uh, we have the, the weight or what's necessary uh, to carry ourselves through. So I pray that you would free us of those burdens this morning as we look to you. And finally, Father, we just want to thank you. We know we're not the only expression of your family on this island. And so I want to pray for my friend Brad and his family up at Central Baptist in Yomitan and Josh 
and his family at Zion Christian Fellowship just down the road, and for my friend Eric, the new pastor at Calvary Church of God in Christ just down the road. We pray that uh, your people who are gathered together in each of those places will hear your voice clearly and find their rest in you today just as we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get down to work. We already heard from Heather. We're going to begin a new sermon series this morning. And Heather, thank you for reading the entirety of Jude. We won't read the entire letter every week for the next five weeks. We'll take five weeks to deep dive on Jude. But I wanted you to hear the entirety of the letter the first time. And then each subsequent week, we'll just read those portions that we'll really deep dive on for that particular week. So Heather, I don't see, there you are. Thanks for reading the whole thing. I really appreciate that. Thanks. One Bible scholar has said this about the letter of Jude. He said, it's the most neglected book in the New Testament. He said the most neglected book in the New Testament is probably the book of Jude. Um, most scholars agree with him. And there are probably reasons that Jude is so neglected. You heard some of those reasons. There's a certain strangeness about Jude. I uh, see a lot of stuff going on with angels. Um, if you read or listen closely, did you see there was a, we get an, a little glimpse into this argument that took place between Michael, the archangel, and Satan concerning the disposition of Moses' dead body. That's strange. Um, you read about Jesus coming with uh, 10,000 of his holy ones. That's a quote from a, a Jewish traditional source known as First Enoch. Uh, Enoch is not in anybody's canon, Catholic church, Protestant churches, uh, Jewish faith groups. It's not in anybody's canon, but it is a trustworthy Jewish traditional source. You can Google it. The entire thing is online in PDF for free, and you should read it this week. Jude not only quotes, but like points back to Enoch's uh, prophecy multiple times. It's really fascinating. Uh, so there's a certain strangeness to Jude, and you read of all the history stuff that's going in there, and that perhaps is one of the reasons that it's so neglected. Uh, show of hands, how many have been through a sermon series on Jude? All right, there we go. There we go. Um, maybe another reason that Jude is so neglected is because it's not just strange, but it's very pointed, right? You heard a lot of stuff in there about judgment. Uh, judgment doesn't sit well on our modern palate. We've kind of lost our taste for judgment talk. So maybe that's a reason. It's not as clear, but it, it'll become clear uh, the next two weeks especially. But uh, really what Jude is honing in on is not like false teaching as much, because he's talking about people who have a profession of faith in Jesus. The problem is that they're denying him with their lives, like they're denying Jesus' authority over their lives. And there was a particular aspect of their lives in which they were denying him. Did you pick up on that aspect in the letter? Anybody hear it or see it? It's very specifically their sexuality. So there's a reason why we might want to stay away from Jude. Uh, he's going to come after your um, sexual identity and your sexual expression and your sexual fulfillment, all of these things, and connect it with your 
uh, relationship with Jesus and whether he does actually have authority over your life as your creator or whether you have projected yourself and your own authority uh, over Jesus. So there are lots of reasons why people would like to stay away from Jude's short letter. But that's the kind of book we like around here. Uh, so we're going to spend some time with Jude. And let me just say, Jude is a really old letter. We don't know exactly when Jude wrote. Mid-first century A.D., probably in the 60s, maybe the 70s, maybe the 80s. And for those of you who like to get down in the weeds on these things, uh, the determining factor is simply who wrote first. Did Peter write 2 Peter first, or did Jude write Jude first? Because if you turn to 2 Peter and read, I think it's especially the second chapter, you're like, oh, wow, I'm reading Jude all over again. So either Peter incorporated Jude's writing into his, one of his letters, or Jude borrowed heavily from Peter, which is very common, but it's very common in, in scriptural writings. Now, for those of you who are new to the, to the Christian faith, um, or for those of you who are just, you happen to be here with a friend this morning and you're not a Christian, and you wonder, how do modern people approach a letter that is 2,000 years old. Like, what's their posture towards this thing? Um, you could preach its own separate sermon on this. Let me just show you briefly so you understand if you're visiting with us how historically Christians would approach a letter like this one and, and this letter in particular. Look at on the screen, 2 Timothy 3. It says this, um, Paul's writing to Timothy. He's like, hey, hey, dude, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writing. So we would consider Jude part of the sacred writings. These writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. So ultimately, Jude's going to point us to Jesus and our need for him. Uh, verse 16 is very important. It says, all of Scripture, so we would view Jude as Scripture, is breathed out by God. In other words, God through his spirit, uh, maybe a word we could use is inspired or communicated through human authors breathed out by God, and it's profitable for us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness. So how do we view it? How do we posture ourselves? Uh, we view it as from God our Father uh, for his fame. It points us to Jesus and for our good. So ultimately, as we approach Jude as modern people, we don't place ourselves in authority over Jude. Rather, we seek to see it as our Father's voice and position ourselves underneath Jude's letter as a over us. And so what we're looking for is, because there's a lot of kind of cultural and historical work to do, we want to find those timeless principles or timeless truths, which are always true. We're true then and we're true now. And though we might have a little work to do to get to our own context to apply it, it was true then, it was true now. And so we want to sit in submission to it as our Father's voice. Now, for those of you who i like, yeah, but John, that's like, you're using a verse in the Bible to say, like, why you believe the Bible. Like, come on, man. Fair, fair point, but I can't, we can't go there this morning. However, um, our apologetics team uh, will be teaching a series of classes this fall. The first one is September 22nd. It has to do with the existence of God. But then in October or early November, the next class will have to do with the historical reliability uh, of scripture from external sources especially. So on that, during that class, you can go and have all the discussions about the historical reliability of Jude and other letters 
And uh, I think you'll find that class very engaging. But that's a class for another day, okay? All right, we got a sermon to preach. We're like, all right, John, come on, history lesson. Let's go, let's go, let's go. All right, Jude. Um, so without having to linger too long, the author is obvious, right? First word in the letter, Jude. Now, Jude was a really common name, though. That's the Greek version of the, of the spelling. Uh, in Hebrew, it would have been Judah, right? So all through the Bible. Also in the Greek in the New Testament, it's not only Jude, but you know this one. Judas. So go by Jude, right? The old boy's going by Jude. Much safer, right? Much safer. Jude, he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ um, and a brother of James. So scholars overwhelmingly agree James and Jude are half-brothers of Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn. Jude and James, came, well, James came along next. Jude is younger than James, which is, of course, the way that you would write it. You're, the firstborn is not saying, I'm so-and-so's brother, right? The second or thirdborn is like, yeah, J James is my older brother. Like, and he had to do it because James is actually known as famous James. Like He was one of the pillars of the New Testament, and then you just happen to have Jude. So for all those of us who are second and thirdborn, like we feel this introduction already, right? Um, but I think there's kind of a subtle burn here because he's like, yeah, I'm James' brother, but I'm Jesus' servant, right? Like um, a, little, a little subtle burn for his brother. But again, for those of you who are not yet Christians, uh, you're spending time with us, I'm really glad you're here. That word servant is really important in the New Testament. It's our, a part of our identity as followers of Jesus. We believe that we have been created by and for Jesus. We exist for him and for his fame and for the good of other people. But I think part of the beauty of the gospel, part of the beauty of the Christian narrative and why it's so much more beautiful than any other narrative you're gonna be introduced to in our world is that though we have been created by and for Jesus and we live as his servants, Jesus himself, our creator, made himself by choice our servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. So the very one we're created to serve makes himself the servant and comes and rescues us. It's the beauty of the gospel and the Christian faith. But that word servant is also a statement of authority in the New Testament. Like Jude is writing as a servant of Jesus. So all through the Old Testament, like Moses would have been a servant. Joshua would have been a servant. Isaiah, right? The big names. So Jude is just letting everybody know, like, I'm not just James's brother. I'm not writing because famous James is my brother. Like, I've been appointed by Jesus, and he's communicated something to me for you. I'm a servant, and so his letter carries a certain weight to it. Who's the letter to? It's to those who are called, beloved, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't know who it's addressed to. It doesn't have a specific audience. Those are just different ways of saying this letter is addressed to followers of Jesus. So in the New Testament, you'll find there's kind of a category of letters known as general epistles. The reason they're called general epistles is we don't know who they're written to. Uh, so it's just generally out there and circulating. Jude is one of those uh, general epistles. Now, the question, what is Jude about? Uh, we see this very clearly in, in verses 3 and 4. Look at, there's actually one reason why he wanted to write but then the actual reason why he ended up writing. Look at this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. That's what Jude wanted to write about, the salvation that we have in common. Rather, I found it necessary. You can almost hear the sadness, like the pivot. I really, really wanted to write to you guys to encourage you and to rehearse the gospel with you, to remind you about Jesus 
and what he's done for us. However, out of necessity, I had to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend is a strong word. Wrestlers, that's a wrestling word. Like uh, my MMA people, my BJJ people. BJJ, like all you like contending. That's like a, that's a, that's a, that's even a combat word, right? That's an aggressive word. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Uh, so he's not talking about contending with people who are not Christians or outside the church. He's actually talking about contending with people inside. Uh, they crept in long ago, designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. Here's what's happening. They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality, that's a sexual word, and they, through their lives, through their sexual expressions, they are denying that Jesus is Lord over them, right? It's amazing how in 2,000 years, everything can change, but everything can stay the same. This is a really relevant book for, for all of us guys, and not just on sexuality, right? Not, not just our sexuality, but on that word servant, like the Western version of Christianity that most of us have grown up in would well, kind of subtly communicate that Jesus is your servant, your genie in, in a bottle, and it's backwards and upside down, right? So even starting there, but servant, sexuality. So this is not the letter that Jude wanted to write, but it's the letter that he wrote. And here it is. Um, the theme, though, if, if you had to write down the theme of Jude in two words, uh, here's, here's what I see, and I want to show you how I pull it right from the letter. Uh, I believe it's forever kept. And notice in the introduction, Jude says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and what? Kept. That's a permanent word. God keeps his kids. So it's there in the beginning, but it's also in the conclusion, and that's why I, I think it's fair to say this would be, if not Jude's theme, uh, like um, one of his themes, because he bookends his letter. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to what? Keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy forever kept. We'll unpack that a little bit. Now, for those of you who like to outline or you just want to know where we're going over the next five weeks or you can plan which weekends you're staying home for college football, shame on you. Here's the outline coming up. Nobody good's playing in the first couple weeks anyway, so just keep coming here. This week, common salvation. I want to preach to you from the letter that Jude didn't write. But he did, because he's a real pastor. And so what he did was like, man, you guys got real problems. I really wanted to talk to you about this. Now I have to talk to you about that. But watch, I'm going to talk to you about this for a little while anyway, right? Like, it's a real pastor, long sermon. Like, so he still got it in. So we'll, we'll hit that, common salvation. Uh, the next two weeks, because it's really the bulk of the letter, we're going to talk about contending for the faith. So as much as I'd like to say some stuff about that this morning, please know I'm not dodging anything difficult. We'll, we'll, we'll get there in the next couple of weeks. Towards the end of the letter, Jude makes a compelling statement. He says, even though we're a kept people, you have something to do to keep yourself in God's love. So we'll unpack that. And then I love, this might be my favorite of the five, maybe, uh, because uh, deconstructing is really a, a buzzword now. And that's okay. It's a good and important and necessary word. Many of you who grew up in traditional Christianity have a lot of deconstructing to do from your Western experiences uh, those of you in the East too, but I mean, I'm just speaking from my own experiences. And so we're going to talk about, Jude talks about caring for doubters and deconstructors. Uh, so we'll hit that too. Okay. That's where we're going. Whew. That was a, that was a long introduction. 
Okay, so let's just consider that two different sermons. Here, that's one. Now, here we go. Here's today. Okay, start, start. Do you want me to pray again so we can, like, start from fresh? You guys want to do another song, Grant? All right, we're doing good on time, though. Here's the big idea for today. We share a common salvation because of our uncommon Savior. If you're a Christian, you share a common salvation with every other follower of Jesus because of the work of our uncommon Savior. I pulled that right from verse 3. Obviously, we already read it. it, Although I'm eager to write to you about our our common salvation. There's the word. I really like, if you you pump down to the first half of verse 5, notice what he says. I I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Now, look at these next few words. I love these words. That Jesus who saved a people. Now, some of you want me to keep reading because you're like, you're staying away from the hard part. Uh, I'm not. We're just not going there today. He says, it says it saved the people out of the land of Egypt, but afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay? We're not dodging it. We'll go there. Just not, not today. For today, I want to point your attention to the fact that Jesus saved people. So we share a common salvation because of the work of our uncommon Savior. And that work is that Jesus saved a definitive people. I love that line. If, if the New Testament needed a title, it could be titled that way, Jesus saved a people. And so again, if you're new or new to the faith or not a Christian and you just find yourself here with a friend, that is one of the, that is one of the core convictions for those of us who follow Jesus. It's not, the core conviction is this, it's not just that some people need saving, it's that we all need saving, we all need rescuing. And though Our culture would offer you many different narratives where you can be the hero of your own saving story or your own redemptive story. The message of the gospel, the message of Christianity would look us in the eyes and say gently but clearly, you can't save yourself. You cannot reconcile yourself with the perfect and holy God who created you. We are too far gone. Uh, too fully corrupted. You need a better rescuer, and Jesus is presented to us as that better rescuer. All right, you're probably tired of outlines, but here's where we're going today. Here it is, okay? We got a common salvation because of our uncommon Savior, and then these three places. We're going to look at our place in the family, followed by the posture of our Father and our perseverance to the, to the finish, okay? So three very important words for each, each subset. Number one, our place in the family. We saw these words in the opening, called, loved, and kept, right? Our Father's posture towards us. How does God, the Father, posture himself towards us as his um, imperfect kids? Mercy, peace, and love. We saw those three words. And then in the closing, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it through this life? Are we going to tap out? Is God going to get tired of us? Will he bring us all the way home? Are we just playing a little game for a little while and then he's going to kick us to the curb? And we're, we're going to see three key words or sets there. And we see keep and present. He's going to present us. And then we'll have to unpack this a little bit. But these words, to our Savior be. But just to tip my hand where we're going with that. That's kind of Jude's way of closing the book, like saying, look, all of this, God does all of this stuff. Like, you don't really do any of it. God the Father does this for you, okay? So to our Savior be, like where we're tempted to give credit or to tell, ourse- tell, this, tell our stories with ourselves at the center, Jude's going to be like, no, God, God, God at the center. To God our Savior be. All right, place in the family, posture of our Father, and perseverance to the finish. 
What is our place in the family? To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. Man, I got to take a time out. Now I feel like now it's sermon time. Like now we're going to preach. Plus, I didn't really work at all in the month of August. So I'm like, and wheels on today, super wobbly. Here we go. All right, three very important words, called, loved, and kept. Now, when you read the New Testament, you're introduced to this idea of calling. And there's a sense in which there's a very general call, right? God, through creation, has revealed himself to every human being that has ever lived. There is a general call in which every human has been created with what the writer of Ecclesiastes likes to talk about, eternity in your heart. In other words, all the discontent that is deep, deep, deep down in your soul. It's not just there by accident, and it's not just that you're a discontented person. It's that you've been created for more, and there's nothing in this created world that can satisfy you the way that God himself, God alone can satisfy you, okay? So there's this general calling where God, through creation and through your own heart, is signaling Yo, I'm out here, right? There's, there's a general sense, but, but, but. In the New Testament, when you read about calling, it, it's not general like that. It is very personal and purposeful and pursuing and powerful. And that's what Jude is gonna show us here. Like, there's a definite article here. It's not, uh, he, he's saying to those who are called, or you could say it this way, to the called, right? To the called. And part of our problem, I was thinking hard about this this week, and um, here's what I got. Part of the problem is we think about this idea of calling too much like Adele's song, Hello, and not enough like the Proclaimers, I'm gonna be. You know that song? All right, we'll get there, all right. But you know Adele. Okay, give me some lines from the chorus. You don't have to sing them. You can. I can walk around with a mic. You want me to walk around with a mic? Hello, what? Well, how's like this? How's the voice sound? Kind of distant, echoey, helpless. Hello, from the other where? From the other side. Um, many of us think of God's call like that. Like God is distant, desperate. Hey, pay attention to me. I made you. I made the world. Hey, but like His voice is just kind of distant and weak, and He's trying. And that's kind of picked up in Adele's chorus too, right? She's calling from the other side. I think it's California. So clearly it's not God's song anyway, because he wouldn't be calling from California. Like, no offense, but anyway, um, from the other side. I must have called a thousand times. There's a line. We think of God's call like that. Like, man, he calls all the time. Like, you never, you never answer. Uh, how, what else does she say? At least I can say I tried. It's almost as if God's up there like, man, I'm, I'm trying everything I can with these kids. At least I'm doing my part. I just wish they would do their part. What else does she sing? I mean, the song really works for a sermon. <laughs> and I'm not ragging on Adele at all. It's just her lyrics are like perfect for this. Any other lines from the chorus that we're not hitting on this idea of call? You're never home. That's in there. I'm trying to talk about the way things used to be. Like, God has this emotive, like, man, I'm really sad, and I'd love to talk to you about the way things, and we could have that again, but you won't listen, you won't call. Like, God has this weak call that he puts out where he's kind, but not powerful to bring the call all the way home. Yo, we got to stop 
God's call like that. It is personal and powerful and purposeful. It's pursuing. And that's why we need the proclaimers. Because what's their song I'm going to be? The chorus, not the whole thing. This could go sideways real quick. That's the song. Somebody, someone give us the chorus. Yes. You got to know, I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walked 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. All right, so now here's where we're going to do a Jesus doesn't fall down at your door, but he for sure takes the initiative. He doesn't call from the other side. He condescended from the other side at great cost to himself. He walked the 500 miles, and he would walk 500 miles more to give you the personal call by name. And he doesn't just show up and fall down at your door. He kicks your door in like he did at Lazarus's grave. And he said, Lazarus, Lazarus was dead. Come out. And Lazarus got up and walked out no longer dead. That, my friends, is the call of God. Not hello from the other but kicking down the grave, the door of your grave where you are dead in your sin, so dead that you're blinded to the God who created you and blinded for your, for your need or blinded to your need for rescue. And he kicks the door in and the call is, John, you're my son now. Come out of your grave and live the way that I created you to live. That's calling. Not weak, not punchless, and not hello from the other side. Proclaimers, baby. Hey, Adele and Proclaimers are both British. That's worked really well, okay? It's worked really well. Called. We're not just called. What's the next word? Was it loved or kept? Loved. I mean, God has a particular love for his kids, but you, you can't start talking about God's love for his kids when we're kids because what does the New Testament say? At just the right time, while we were so far from God and we were his enemies, out of love for us, Christ died for us. He died for his enemies. God has a love for his enemies that leads him to send his son to die in his place. So we knew his love even before we were his kids. But now as called ones, we know his love in a particular Way. And you just got to know this word love. It's a present tense kind of thing. The father looks at his kids right now and he says, I love you the way that you are. The beauty of the gospel, you don't have to do anything to earn his love. God doesn't love you because you're lovable. God loves you because he is love. You don't earn his love. He gives his love freely out of the depth of who he is. You're loved right now. You were loved last night when you were secretly doing shameful things that you hope and pray nobody ever finds out about. You were deeply loved earlier this week when you were crying all alone, feeling helpless and full of shame or full of agony or defeated again. You're loved there. You're not loved on your good days only. You're not loved because you're a good kid. In fact, if I just, you just got to know, like, this is not a church for good kids. We are, maybe that's why we like books like Jude so much. It's just a reminder that the misfits, like God pursues the, miskit, the misfits and the kids that, man, you wouldn't choose because they're good kids. God loves us because he is love. You are loved. You're called, powerfully called. You're loved and, man, kept. You're kept. You're kept. God does not do foster care. God does adoption. My wife and I had some experiences uh, serving as foster parents back when we lived in New York, multiple children, different sets of kids. 
We all know that foster care has profound effects on the children who are being fostered, like lifelong effects. Foster care also has effects on the children, the biological children of families who provide that, that care. And children can, uh, children who are part of an or organic family unit providing foster care can see siblings come and go and start to develop this sense or low-grade fear that maybe I come and go too. And too many of us have that sense of the Christian faith or God's posture towards us. Guys, the New Testament is abundantly clear. God the Father does not practice foster care. He practices adoption. And when he calls you and sets his love on you as a father, here it is in Jude. He says, I keep you. That's a forever word. That's a forever loved kind of word. That's our place in the family, guys. And that is what in Christ we have in common. That's our common salvation at the hands of an uncommon Savior. And what is our Father's posture towards us? Verse 2. This is a prayer we can tell. You would say, well, it's kind of a well-wishing, sure, but like in New Testament letters, in the opening, you see a, a, a sentence begin this way. This is their way of writing a prayer into the introduction of their letter. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So what is our Father's posture uh, towards us? Oh, I skipped a verse. Uh, I told you the training wheels are on today. You guys probably, John 17, 11, there it is. It's on the screen. That whole idea of being kept. Okay, listen, you're not kept because you're a good kid or, you're, you, or you're, mm, you do something that would earn your place in the family indefinitely. We, man, we got to keep this kid around. You're kept because Jesus, God the Son, prayed and asked the Father, Father, these are the people you asked me to call. I rescued them. Yikes. Do you guys want me to switch to the... I'll just get it ready. I rescued them. And in John 17, how do we see it? I'm no longer in the world. I'm leaving. He's sending back to the Father. But they're staying. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Why are we kept? Because Jesus asked the Father to keep us, and the Father said, okay, I'm keeping them. And then we see in Jude, we are the kept ones. It is an answer to Jesus' very specific prayer on our behalf. That's why we're kept. All right, posture of the Father towards us. Uh, second verse of Jude uh, says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, this is a prayer, but it's also a statement of fact. When you are adopted into the family, you're shown mercy. So it's done. You're given mercy. That is, you receive God the Father's undeserved kindness toward you, right? You receive that. It's given to you already. Uh, you receive peace. Even if you don't experience it or feel it, you are positionally at peace with God the Father. So before Jesus, there's hostility between you and God the Father. You deserve judgment. Jesus takes the judgment. You're given peace with the Father. And then that vertical begins to work itself out horizontally, right? So you're given that positional peace. Um, love, you are given the love. Love is not given to you in stages. You receive the Father's love. So now Jude's prayer is that you would know the Father's increasing mercy, increasing peace, and increasing love. But what's the word? It's not addition. What's the word? Multiplication. So my math people, all those of you who have deep convictions about compounding interest and your one-year-old already has their, their retirement account set up, right? 
Like they know about compound interest before they're walking or sipping from a bottle or so like those of you, you know the difference between multiplication and addition. Guys, the father's posture towards you is not one of, well, I'll give you a little bit now. A little bit, let's save it. Let's pace this thing out. The father's posture towards you is that he wants to pour out and multiply towards you your experiences of his kindness. That word mercy really is anchored in the Old Testament. It has the idea of covenant, like an agreement that God makes that he will never break. And the way that we could understand it is it's an agreement that he's made And Jesus is the one who guarantees the fulfillment of this on our behalf. Because if we were like the equal trading partner with God, he would never be obligated to keep his kindness towards us. We would fall short every day. Jesus never falls short. And so God's commitment to us is never-ending posture of kindness. So when you fail as a follower of Jesus, when you are angry towards God, when you are complaining, when you are weeping, when you are rebelling, the Father's posture towards you is always one of kindness. Even if he has to act to discipline you, correct you, it is an act of kindness from the Father so that you self-destruct. Kindness, mercy, that's, that's mercy, kindness, peace and love multiplied to you. That's maybe the key word there, multiplied. All right, we got to keep trucking. That's the Father's posture towards us. Now, what about our perseverance to the finish? Like, do I make it all the way? Uh, is, uh, is, is there a way that I'm going to lose my place in God's family along the way? Or maybe you, you'd be used to hear, like, can I lose my salvation? Maybe that's the question we're trying to answer. Well, let's just answer that from verses 24 and 25, which say... There is somebody who is able to keep you. And Jude says, now to the one who is able. In other words, it's not you. So can you, you, can you lose your salvation? Yeah, yeah. You lose it all day, every day. If it were up to you, I don't think that's what it says. Now to the one who is able to keep you. Who is that one? Uh, the only God, verse 25. Good news, you're not God. Good news, you're not able to keep yourself. That takes quite a bit of pressure off of those of you who have grown up in uh, religious contexts that would heap that pressure on your shoulders. To the only God, our Savior. You're not your own Savior. There is one who is able to keep you. It's not yourself. You're not God, and you're definitely not a Savior. There is a God, the only God, who is your Savior. He is the able one who can and will keep you from stumbling, from falling out of the family. But look at this next line, guys. This is so, this matters to us. Not as the only to keep you from stumbling. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Wow. That's good news because how many of you feel blameless right now based on what you did when nobody else was looking over the last seven days? Blameless, fam. Jesus is going to present you to your father as a blameless son or daughter. At the cross, Jesus took all of your blame. He says, I'll take it. I'll make it my own. And I will give to everyone who is called and responds by faith. 
I will give them my blamelessness. I will take all that is wrong backed up about them, and I will give them everything that is right about me. And the Father's aim is not just to barely get you home. The Father's aim is that when, I just imagine, like, you can, you can feel like the story of the prodigal son when the son comes home, right? And he's coming down the driveway, and dad sees him from a long way off from the porch. And we are so used to, in our religious experiences, like, we would expect the son's got to make it all the way to the porch, and then prove himself the really good speech. I'm really sorry, dad. And then like weeks and months stacked together of, I won't do that again. I'm home for good. I'm changed. I'm a new son. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the father runs down off the porch and meets you in your rags and your filth. And without a, without a single work on your behalf to prove that you're he wraps you in his arms with tears streaming down his cheeks, and he texts back home. They didn't text them, but he would now. Hey, throw a party. He's home. Amen. That's the gospel. That's the difference. He's going to present you blameless. And notice the words, with great joy. All the fear you have, all the worry, the concern. No, 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 no. When you're presented by Jesus to God the Father, the joy here is not his joy, though we know from other places he will do this joyfully. The joy that he's talking about here is yours. You will know pure joy. And that's good. You would like to know pure joy, but in your lifetime, you've only tasted little bits of joy in a relationship, in a success, in beauty, in art, in some experience, you get tastes of it and you know it's good. And you wish everything but joy could be driven from your heart. Well, one day it will be. He's going to present you with joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Four very important words to finish. Uh, the sense of weight or the strength, the ability to get something, the weightiness of this thing. Majesty as a king. Um, dominion as like sovereignty, control over this thing. And authority. All four very important words, if we put them all together, just a reminder that, look, these promises made to you will be completed because Jesus is able and powerful enough to all of these things we are powerless to accomplish. Jesus accomplishes on our behalf. Amen. Guys, that's, that's what we share in common. That's our common salvation from an uncommon Savior. All right, we got to wrap this up. That was bad for two sermons, right? So here's number three. Let's wrap it up. Number three. Uh, let's just do a little application. I want to start with um, gospel math first. Okay, just humor me, my mathematicians. Let's just do a little rehearsal. Let's see how much we bring to the table and contribute to this thing and how much of it belongs to God. Okay, so let's just add it up. Uh, we're going to have to, or our first three words in our place in the family. What are they? Called, loved, kept. All right called? Are we acting or receiving? Okay, one for God. Kept are, or loved. Are we, are we the loving ones or the loved ones? Receiving. Okay, one for God. Now we're up to two. Two to nothing if you're keeping score. It's football. I love, love sports. Love scores. Uh, next one, keeping. Are we keeping ourselves or is God the Father keeping us in the family? All right, three nothing. It's a shutout so far. Perfect game. What are the next three words? And maybe the most important word in that, mercy, peace, and love, but what? Be multiplied to you. So that kind of affects all three of those 
words. Are you multiplying the peace toward yourself or the toward yourself or the mercy toward yourself? No, 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 no. Three more into God's column. Six nothing, baby. Six nothing. And then we approach the final, the final, uh, final wording from Jude, the one who is able to keep you, the one who's going to present you. Are you keeping yourself? No. Are you presenting yourself? No. And to God be all, what? Glory, power, authority, dominion. It's all his. By my tally, it's up to nine nothing. What do you bring to this thing? Nothing. What does God bring to this? Everything. In love, guys. You know how good news that is? You don't have to do anything to save yourself. God kind of set it up that way because you can't do anything to save yourself. The gospel is really good news and the most beautiful narrative you will encounter in our culture. All right, gospel math. Now, I just want to say this. I think we can get this. We'll get into this in the coming weeks. As followers of Jesus, we need to normally focus on what we have in common in Jesus and only when necessary contend. The reason I say that is, man, especially in our internet age, there are entire like cottage industries that have sprung up around preachers and podcasters and writers, and it's just 24-7, 365 contending. That's not godly. That is not godly. It should be 9 out of 10 rehearsing what we have in common, 9 times for every one contending. Like seriously. But there are many, and I'll just, they call themselves discernment ministries, right? They're all, they're all over the place. And it is just daily contending with preachers or pastors or churches or Christians they don't like. It's not godly. It is wicked, fam. The gospel patterns that normally, when we get out of bed and we set our feet on the ground, the word that Jude was, that used was, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. That's right there. We are, our greatest desire is finding and rehearsing what we have in common with other followers of Jesus from an uncommon Savior. And only when necessary, contend. And then my third application, contend wisely. Uh, we'll deep dive later, next week. But did you notice just from our overview what Jude, the nature, uh, like what Jude was contending with? People who were perverting the gospel and denying the authority of Jesus. So much of what Christians want to contend about have nothing to do with denying the authority of Jesus or perverting the gospel. We just get into these arguments over secondary and tertiary and tertiary, however you'd say that word, all the way down the line types of things rather than rehearsing what we have in common. There's a time to contend when necessary, contend lies in. All right. But we got to crush what's, what's what we have in common, right? So we kind of identified nine things this morning. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of things. Not really. I love baseball. We got nine, nine players in the starting lineup. I can crush my favorite team's starting lineup. I can, we could talk about it right now. Football season's about to start. I can crush the names of the guys on the team that I like. What's your favorite show? You don't have to admit it out loud. Okay? You could crush the characters. You could describe them. You, you feel one or two of them, right? We could do this all day long. Guys, as followers of Jesus, we own and crush what we have in common for our own good and for the good of other people. Ugh. Last, last thing I want to say, because we got some Jude sitting in here. Uh, this comes from John 7, 3. Um, Five, John 7, 5. Do you know this is in the Gospels? It says, not even his brothers believed in him until after the resurrection. 
Guys, the person who wrote this book thought Jesus was He grew up around Jesus, and he was not a follower of Jesus. That's really good news for you because many of you, depending on where you came from in the country, you have grown up around Jesus, and you are not following him. You are, you are following yourself. And so you may be wondering, would, would God the Father still love me, still call me into his family, and still show me mercy? Jude's life and letter stand as a definitive yes God the Father is calling you home right now because he wants to show you mercy and love. That's the Father's disposition to you as it was Jude, Jesus' own blood brother who disbelieved him until after he was gone. The Father wants to show you mercy this morning. Let me pray. The, the worship team's gonna come. Father, thank you for Jude's letter, 2,000 years old but so relevant to us this morning. I pray that as we have a moment to respond, that every person in this room would hear your powerful voice calling clearly by name, and that this morning, Father, you would, through the, through the work of Jesus and your spirit, kick down the doors to our hearts. Some of us are still dead in our graves of sin. And Father, we pray that you would, through your resurrection power, bring new sons and daughters to life this morning, and for the first time, allow some rebel sons and daughters to experience your kindness and your mercy and your love in Jesus. Father, for all the Judes in this room who have spent a lifetime disbelieving and doing themselves, Father, give them the beautiful gift of kindness and mercy this morning. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.